Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The murder of Emma Till in Mississippi in 1955 is probably the most famous lynching in American history. Now there's a novel about it, sort of. It's a wild comic novel. The author is Percival Everett. It's called The Trees, and it's really good. How is it possible to write a comic novel about a lynching? For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has about 3 million listeners. We reached him today at home in Pasadena. Hi, John. Hello, John. Well, the story of Emma Till is known to millions of students who watched episode one of the documentary Eyes on the Prize. It's been shown in classrooms everywhere for a couple of decades now, including mine at UC Irvine. The story as told there starts at the Tallahatchie River in a small town with the unlikely name of Money, Mississippi. Here, the narrator Julian Bond says, the body of Emma Till was found way down in the waters. Two local men were arrested and charged with the murder. They were white. Emma Till, of course, was black. He was from Chicago. He had come to Money to visit his relatives. The white woman who worked in a store said he had grabbed her and was menacing, but in 2017, she told historian Timothy Tyson that was not true. The body was shipped home back north to Chicago, where the boy's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, insisted on an open casket funeral. Jet magazine showed Till's corpse, beaten, mutilated, shot through the head, A generation of black people would remember the horror of that photo. In The New Yorker recently, Julian Lucas explained the deeper significance of that photo in Jet magazine. Photos of the lynch bodies of black men and of the white crowds who watched were distributed widely on postcards uh, throughout the South. These images functioned as weapons of white supremacist terror. But Mamie Till's decision to hold an open casket viewing of her maimed son galvanized millions against segregation and lynching. She reappropriated her son's death from his killers, who had intended it as an act of intimidation. And she turned that image into an act of defiance, inviting press photographers and crowds of strangers to, in her words, let the world see what they did to my boy. Meanwhile, back in Money, Mississippi, Roy Bryant, 
husband of the woman in the store, and, and J.W. Milam, her brother-in-law, were arrested for the murder of Emma Till. At their trial, it took an all-white jury one hour to find the men not guilty. A couple months later, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam told their story of how they had murdered Emma Till to a reporter named William Bradford Huey. He paid them $4,000 for their story, which appeared in Look magazine. That was one of more than 500 documented lynchings in Mississippi alone. And now Percival Everett has made that story the basis of a wild comic novel. How does he make it funny? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a natural thing to make funny. But I think as often happens in Everett's case, what he didn't want to do was to make it too earnest or protest novelly. It's, it's, it's like a comic Police story, in a way, you, it's set in the in present. It's set in the present, and what happens is there's a crime. Two white guys, are, or actually one guy first, is killed. His throat is slit. He's castrated, and his testicles are in the hand of a black body that somehow just happens to be there. And it turns out that the first two white victims are the sons of the two men who murdered Emmett Till. So maybe. This is some kind of revenge killing. Now, how does that make it funny? On the face of it, it doesn't sound like it's funny. Yet from the opening lines, he's making fun of the town of Money, Mississippi, and making fun of the people who are killed, who are the stereotypical or beyond stereotypical kind of, quote, redneck, unquote, people. That, in fact, the whole thing is portrayed as a kind of comic, dark comic farce about the murder of people. And why would you do this? I think that his sense was that everybody has been, feels beaten by stories of lynching and, and, and Black people being murdered. So it almost doesn't register as much as it might. I think what he's trying to do is use comedy in telling this story to somehow knock us out of our received sense of how you would look at this. And one way you make it funny is that you treat the white people with the kind of derisive contempt that black people were often portrayed in, in Hollywood movies. You know, so they're kind of like white, it, it, I, I don't like the term white trash, but, it, but in this case, it kind of fits white trash minstrelsy, if you can see it. The white, <laughs> the white people are like the worst case comical scenario of those people. And therefore, to make it comical, you can, they're slightly dehumanized in that way, um, which, which makes it funny. Now, at first might seem like a police procedural. You have the, the small town sheriff with his dim sidekick trying to solve it. And then you have two members of the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, both black, who are quite jocular and bicker like, an, in, like in a, a cop buddy movie as, as they're looking into the case. And then you have an, a, a kind of disaffected FBI agent who became an FBI agent because she knew how much her, her, her progressive parents would hate it. And she gets involved in it. And what happens is that it's, it's, it is kind of a farce or a, a, a buffoonish version of a serious thing. And it does have the effect, weirdly enough, of, make you, of making you think about things in a slightly different way. And there's one other notable white character, the woman who accused Emma Till yes. is now a very elderly granny. She is filled with regret and remorse. You no, know, she is filled with regret and remorse. She's known she's done all this. To, and in fact, she's not murdered. 
there's a strange forgiveness. I mean, she, she does die, but, but it, there is a strange forgiveness to her in the sense that she's not brutally murdered because she owned up to it and felt shame and horror for the past. So she doesn't actually have to be punished in quite the same way because she's internally punishing herself. This is actually the true part of this otherwise yes. wildly imaginative novel. Yes. The, the accuser did, close to her death, admit that she had lied and yes. we assume did so remorsefully and apologetically. Yes, no, I think so. You know, so, so, and, and the thing about it is that there are so many farcical and kind of cop story elements to it. Yet, I mean, I remember there's a famous George Bernard Shaw line about, or not, it's not a famous, a not very famous George Bernard Shaw line, where he says that the privilege of joking in public should only be reserved to very serious people. Oh. And, and uh, you know, it's a, a classic Shaw paradox. But in fact, this is a serious book. And one of the ways you know it's a serious book is you're reading them. They're filled with jokes and, 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 and clever lines. You're like, I think one of them, dead is the new black, you know, <laughs> which is, you know, it just, you know, it, it's filled with great lines, great jokes, funny dialogue. Yet occupying almost the dead center of the novel is something that comes up where a researcher comes down from the north and meets up with a woman named Mama Z who's been keeping records of all the lynching, murdered black people. And in the middle of this novel, suddenly you just get page after page just of names. And these are all people who actually were murdered. The, the, you know, and the center of the book is the list of all of these names, names you don't know, but just kind of reminding you in the center of all this, this is something that is widespread, has been going on an incredibly long time. And that this is what the book is about. It's, it's about these people and all the stuff spinning wildly around it is an attempt to make us notice this. And I want to go back to the testicles in the hand of the dead black man who might be Emma Till. Of course, this was something that the white lynchers often did to black yes. men, often accused of having sex or so-called yeah. raping uh, white women. Here, the black killer apparently has castrated his white victims, kind of turning the tables on yeah. a familiar story. Yes, it is. You know, it's, it's a symbolic reversal. And, 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 and so essentially what, what happens through the book is wherever there are cases where someone has, has, been, has been lynched or, or, or race killed in this book, you do find the kind of symbolic reenactment with the white body and the black body, because the, the, and they're bound together. And of course, it's a huge thing because there are so many cases. And in fact, you know, there are even some Chinese people along the way. And it's not just Mississippi. You know, in your home state of Minnesota, I think there is, you know, there, there, there is an example, isn't there? In 1924, there was a lynching in Duluth, Minnesota of yeah. three black men. And this appears very briefly, but very, very obviously, in Percival Everett's book, it's not just in Mississippi that yes. black men were lynched for accu on accusations made by white women. It was even in Minnesota and in Orange County, California, yeah. the lynching victims are Asians. Yeah. Now, what's, what's interesting in it is that, as I mentioned earlier, the book has the shape of some sort of thing where you're going to solve the crime. Now, gradually, of course, the cops realize the crime is so vast 
And then I can't say what happens, but 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 it even changes it changes it to an, an even spookier turn by the end, and and, and a turn of vengeance. It must be it, it must be said, or or at least ju- justice, which probably is attached to vengeance in this particular case. And the book, in some kind of ways, almost explodes. The crime is so vast that you can't solve it as a crime. You can't contain it all within the book. That there's no resolution that you can possibly propose to it in this book. There's no crime solving. There's no hero that can do it. And, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, once again, that's a, a, using the method of fiction to suggest the vastness of this, while at the same time, I think, knowing that readers want to be entertained. The kind of pop dimension of this book, which makes it so pleasurable, is that it's giving you this horrible stuff, and yet at the same time, you don't feel ground down or beaten down. James Baldwin wrote about the problem with with a certain kind of protest novel is that it's telling you something that you know and then making you feel awful about it and yet nothing comes of it. Everett's whole career is something different to that. We live in a time when the representation of oppression and the representation of the black body is a highly controversial, contested and troubled issue. Percival Everett is a brave man to step into these waters. How does he do it? I remember once interviewing a a dissident Polish director and I said, "Um, your book, your films are quite funny. And he said, yes, I smile through clenched teeth. And I think as you read this book, which is very funny, the rage that comes through is so powerful. And this is the way that he channels his rage in the way that, you know, someone like Ishmael Reed might might challenge his rage. This is how he focuses it. Now, the representation of the black body here in this particular case, it shifts off to the white body. The black body is there, but it's now having done what the black body had done to it. It's shocking to us to read it. And it's especially shocking to the white people in the novel. For them, this is this is like something out of this world that, that you would actually just be killed for seemingly no reason, have your body mutilated and your testicles cut off. And in some cases, you haven't done anything. You've been the son of somebody who did something, but that's sufficient. And of course, in the case of so many lynchings, that was what was sufficient. Somebody decided that's sufficient and this happens to you. And the shock and horror of the white people at, at, at this going on in the novel is, is, is quite powerful. We're two white guys here talking about this. I think, think, we, okay. I think that's yeah, pretty and, clear. Yes, and it's pretty clear. I, I, I'm not giving it away. You know, I mean, this isn't a spoiler. Um, but, you know, I've been a writer for a long time. And, and part of, I think, white privilege as a writer is that you don't ever have to worry about your whiteness. It is just there, so you never have to make it a theme. My book isn't about being white, it's about being human. Whereas for so many African-American and and, and probably Asian and Latino writers, you you are stuck with people expect you to or want you to, to deal with being black. And how does Percival Everett deal with this expectation among readers. Percival Everett has, from the very beginning, I think, taken on the freedom that a white writer would automatically assume, which is he wants to write about what he wants to write about in the way that he wants to write about it. And what that means is he's, he writes books about brilliant babies, and he writes books about university professors. He writes linguistically complex things. 
He writes about detectives who are black, but he never plays up the fact they're black. He inhabits their blackness, but it's not the point of the book. It's just there in the book. In this particular case, I think the Trump years drove him slightly insane. I, don't, I mean, I don't know him at all. I think that somehow, I mean, Trump appears in the novel, but the, the, the Trump years drove him insane enough that he wrote in some ways his most overt novel about this. But in fact, his way has always been cool and funny. He, he channels anger into wit. And I think that, that's what happens in this particular case. I mean, what I think is important about him is that he's been able to escape in a way that lots, that lots, of, lots of African-American writers have, I think, have felt trapped. Even in his personal life, he likes hunting and fishing and, and horseback riding. That doesn't sound like an African-American writer. He has basically taken the freedom that a white guy like me actually just got for, I, it, didn't take, it didn't cost me anything to get it. I got it for free. He's actually, I think, claimed it for himself. And so I think that's how he's gotten so daring in this particular book. You know, in the same way as he was daring in his book, Erasure, where he made fun of some of the books that Oprah was putting on her TV show books like Precious that were kind of filled with not very well-written stories of, of Black misery, ignorance, and crime. We should say one other thing about Percival Everett. He is phenomenally productive and active as a writer. He's written 22 other novels and a total of something like 44 books. He basically writes one of these a year. One last thing. Why is this book called The Trees? Okay, well, I think there, there are at least three reasons why it's called the trees. Reason one is trees are what lynched people are hung from. So that's just starting at the most literal level. It's about, about lynching. The second one is it's about, I think, family trees, you know, in the sense that, you know, that you're killing the, the branches of the people who actually did the initial killing of Emmett Till. And then the third, I think, is a play on the idea of the forest and the trees. I think we all know the forest of lynching and somehow it seems so vast to us and indistinguishable. And yet I think for him, the trees are like you start with the Emmett Till case, other people who were killed figure, and then the list of names in the middle, those are trees. They actually have names. They have identities. They listed. The woman Mama Z who's keeping the list of all of them is keeping those trees alive because it's so easy to blur it all. Oh, yes, the tragic history of lynching in America. But in each case, it's somebody whose body has been destroyed and probably humiliated while being destroyed and then deliberately desecrated afterwards. It is a forest trees, I mean, and the trees and family trees, which is a very Percival Everett thing to do. John Powers, the novel is The Trees. The author is Percival Everett. John, thanks for talking with us today. Okay, my pleasure. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.